Welcome to Episode 9 of History of the Marine Corps, The Marines Prepare for Action. Last week we discussed the Siege of Boston and how both British and American forces would be at a standstill for 11 months. During this standoff, the colonies were trying to figure out how to lead an army while lacking experienced generals. We also discussed the life of a British soldier compared to an American soldier, and briefly touched on the Second Continental Congress and their decision to stand up military forces. This week, we're starting to see some action by Marines. We discussed some of the first Marines to enlist in the Marine Corps and learn about their mission of recruiting Marines for war. This leads to the Naval Committee of Congress's decision to develop and implement naval regulations. We'll end the episode by taking a look at some naval battles against the world's strongest naval force, the British Navy. We're starting to see some exciting battles here, so let's get into it. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. As we discussed during the last episode, General George Washington didn't like the idea of raising two battalions of Marines from his existing army. Congress wasn't ready to abandon the idea of a Marine Corps just yet, but they understood General Washington's point. So they relieved him of his responsibility of raising two battalions of Marines and passed it on to Samuel Nicholas. On a side note, we dig into Samuel Nicholas during episode 4, creatively titled Samuel Nicholas. I suggest you take a listen if you want to learn more about his life. With Samuel Nicholas now appointed, the Marine Corps officially had its first Marine, and the recruitment process began. Leadership was needed, so the first Marines selected were officers. Two Marines joined in November. Captain Joseph Shoemaker was one of the first Marines who joined. Shoemaker was a common name in the Revolutionary times, and so was the name Joseph. Needless to say, tracking down the history of Joseph Shoemaker is not an easy task. There isn't a lot of information about Shoemaker, but we do know that Captain Shoemaker was a senior officer on the ship Columbus and was from the Philadelphia area. He led 60 Marines during the landing at New Providence, but his actions during this battle aren't well documented. Captain Shoemaker would tender his resignation immediately after the Columbus returned to Connecticut in April 1776. Captain Shoemaker did try to collect additional pay for time served after he gave his resignation, and the records of the Marine Corps Committee of Congress state the following. It is the opinion of this committee that Captain Shoemaker should not receive pay longer until his arrival in Philadelphia, nor be allowed for rations after he left the ship and his pay was accordingly settled and paid up to the second day of May, 1776. Captain Shoemaker's post-Marine life is hard to evaluate because of the popularity of his name. Joseph Shoemakers were shopkeepers, tanners, silversmiths, and hatters, but no record indicate any served as a captain in the Marine Corps. Isaac Craig was an Irishman born in County Down in Northern Ireland. He was commissioned as a first lieutenant on November 29, 1775. Craig emigrated to Philadelphia in 1765 or 1767 with his brother James. When he arrived, he started work as a journeyman carpenter and was very good at his craft. Craig reached the title Master Carpenter relatively quickly. He had little to no military experience, 
but would enlist in the Marines as one of the oldest lieutenants to join at age 34. Lieutenant Craig would participate in the raid on New Providence, Battle of Assunpink, and Battle of Princeton. On March 3, 1777, now a captain, Craig would resign as a Marine and join Colonel Thomas Proctor's Pennsylvania Regiment of Artillery in the Army. While Captain Craig served in the Army, he would participate in the Battle of Brandywine and Battle of Germantown. Craig would be promoted to Major on October 7, 1781. His enlistment would end a year and a half later on June 17, 1783. Craig would lead a very successful life after his military service as a businessman, but he still had that warrior spirit. At the age of 71, he would serve in the War of 1812, preparing munitions for the Northwestern Army. In December 1775, seven more Marine officers would join. They were Captain John Welsh, Lieutenants John Fitzpatrick, Robert Cummings, John Hood Wilson, Henry Dayton, Matthew Park, and Lieutenant Miller. The background of these additional seven Marines are a mystery. However, we do have some information about their actions at New Providence, which we will get into next week. The initial recruitment of Marines fell on the shoulders of the three captains, Samuel Nicholas, Joseph Shoemaker, and John Welsh, and also the two senior lieutenants, Isaac Craig and John Hood Wilson. Recruitment locations were stood up in early December. It is very likely that recruiting stations were held in local taverns. Taverns were a common gathering point. Many groups and meetings were held in taverns, and recruiting from these public houses was a common tactic used in Great Britain. We dug into the importance of the tavern trade in Episode 2, Tavern Life in Colonial Philadelphia, and a little in Episode 3, Samuel and Joshua Carpenter. Although it's entirely possible for Tun Tavern to be the birthplace of the first marine recruitment drive, there isn't evidence that this occurred. Samuel Nicholas owned a tavern called the Conestoga Wagon. Since Nicholas was an essential figure in the recruitment of Marines, and was one of the first Marines who served, it seems more likely that the origin of the Marine Corps was in Nicholas's Conestoga Wagon. While Marine recruitment was going on, the streets were lined with drummers with highly decorated drums meant to attract recruits. One drummer had his drum painted with a coiled rattlesnake ready to strike, with the famous saying, Don't tread on me. Out of the five recruiters, Lieutenant Isaac Craig was one of the most successful. His first day recruiting was on December 9, 1775, and he was able to sign nine men that day, and four the following day. By December 22nd, Craig had enlisted more than 40 men into the Marines. One interesting fact. Out of the 40 men he recruited, only eight were born in America, and many had successful lives outside of the military. Craig recruited doctors, butchers, bakers, jewelers, millers, and many other respectable professions. The average age of his recruits was 25 and a half years old and stood at 5 foot 5 inches tall. Today's average age for Marine recruits is 18 years old with a height of 5 foot 9 inches. With Marines being recruited and ships for the Navy being built, the Naval Committee of Congress agreed that naval regulations need to be adopted to organize the Navy. 
The rules for the regulation of the Navy of the United Colonies was created the same day Nicholas was appointed as captain. And a copy of this regulation can be found under this episode on historyofthemarinecorps.com. These regulations were drafted by John Adams and were based on naval regulations from Great Britain. They mostly discussed the basics. Pay, rations, and disciplinary actions. The newly established naval provisions would apply to all men, ships, and vessels belonging to the 13 United Colonies. 44 articles were included in this regulation and most dealt with penalties for disciplinary actions. For example, the punishment for an enlisted marine swearing would be to wear a wooden collar or some other shameful badge of distinction for so long a time as he shall judge proper. If he be a commissioned officer, he shall forfeit one shilling for each offense, and a warrant or inferior officer six pence. This sounds a lot like a modern swear jar to me. If any sailors or marines are guilty of drunkenness, they shall be put in irons until he is sober. But if it's an officer, he shall forfeit two days' pay. There were limits on the punishment officers can give to enlisted men. In Article 4 states that no commander shall inflict any punishment on a seaman beyond 12 lashes upon his bare back with a cat of nine tails. More serious crimes, such as theft, falling asleep on duty, mutiny and desertion, were handled by a court-martial consisting of 12 officers. Article 39 lists the requirements of at least three captains and three lieutenants, with three captains and three first lieutenants of marines. The death penalty was authorized, but reserved for those who committed murder or showed cowardice in battle. Food was also rationed, and on Saturday, each man would receive bread, pork and or beef, a half pint of peas, and four ounces of cheese. Each man was also provided a half pint of rum per day. Pay was also established. Marine captains would get paid $26.66 per month. Lieutenants, $18 a month. Sergeants, $8 a month. Corporals, fifers, and drummers, $7.33 a month. And privates, $6.66 a month. The naval regulations would also include a contract of enlistment, which everyone had to read and sign. The terms of enlistment for sailors and marines was for one year, unless sooner discharged by Congress. On top of their salary, Men or their families would be given a bounty of any proceeds if they died, lost a limb, or were seriously injured. The ship commander would receive $400, marine captains $300, and everyone else $200. There were also rewards for men who contributed to the capture of a ship. If a marine were first to spot a ship that would later be captured, he would receive double the bounty. If a marine were the first to board a ship, he would receive triple the bounty. Congress was also busy trying to figure out who to appoint to the seven ships they now owned. Isaac Hopkins was one of the top candidates for this role. Hopkins was commander-in-chief for the Navy. He had prior naval experience as a privateer during the French and Indian War. Hopkins' son, John Hopkins, would command the Cabot, and his good friend Abraham Whipple would command the Columbus. John Paul Jones would be given the Alfred, Hoisted Hacker the Fly, Captain William Stone the Hornet, and Captain William Halleck the Wasp. 
Dudley Saltonstall would command the Alfred, and Nicholas Biddle would command the Andrew Doria. Now it's late December. Naval vessels are adequately controlled, five companies of Marines have been raised, and all have been paid a month in advance. However, they were not armed. The Naval Committee of Congress did not have the resources to provide weapons to the Marines, so they passed that responsibility onto the Pennsylvania Committee of Safety. The Pennsylvania Committee of Safety provided Marines 100 muskets, 100 bayonets and scabbards, and 12 iron ramrods. This was not nearly enough to arm five companies of Marines. On December 30, 1775, the Pennsylvania Council of Safety asked other country committees for help. They released a document titled The Order of Committee Respecting Firearms, and it stated, The high demand for firearms to equip the boats and vessels employed in defense of the River Delaware and to supply the Marines on board the Continental Armed Vessels now ready to sail has occasioned the necessity of our collection all the arms belonging to the public in every part of the province. The associations in this city have already delivered up all that was in their hands, and we hope those in the country will cheerfully comply and deliver up all that is in their custody. We hope before the country can be exposed to danger, a sufficient number of arms will be procured to furnish those who cannot supply themselves, and in the meantime, most earnestly request you would exert yourselves to procure as fast as possible and send down to this committee all the public arms that are in your country to be employed in immediate service. After this document was shared, Marines were able to receive an additional 136 muskets and 50 bayonets. However, this was still not enough. It wasn't until the middle of January Marines received enough weapons to arm the five companies. Another resource issue they had was uniforms. The Army was receiving all of the uniforms, and there wasn't enough money to purchase uniforms for Marines. Marines would fight in clothing they enlisted in until 1776, where they would be issued a uniform. With weapons in hand, Marines were ordered to the Cuthbert, Willing, and Morris docks, where they relieved the 1st Pennsylvania Battalion who guarded the six Continental ships. On January 3, 1776, Marines would board the ships and set sail for a mission top secret destination unknown. I feel like there is an opportunity for an old-timey C-130 cadence joke here. A few months before the organization of the navies and marines was taking place, Benedict Arnold was heading towards Fort Ticonderoga to take their 80 heavy cannons, 20 brass guns, and 10 to 12 large mortars. He raised a force of 400 men for the capture. He learned that Ethan Allen, leader of the Green Mountain Boys, had a similar mission, and Arnold hurried to meet up with Allen and the Green Mountain Boys so they wouldn't take the glory of capturing Fort Ticonderoga. Arnold was able to meet up with Allen, and they negotiated an attack strategy that would result in the fort being quickly taken. During this battle, Allen sent some of his men on ships to Lake Champlain to seize a small schooner. Benedict Arnold realized the importance of capturing this lake. The country controlling the lake controlled passage of all troops in the area. This would force the British military to gather reinforcements from Quebec and the only avenue of approach was through the lake. Benedict Arnold realized amphibious warfare was imminent and needed a force of marines to help protect this land. Arnold proposed a mission to St. John's to capture the George III, a well-armed ship. 
He was successful and returned to Fort Ticonderoga with the George III on May 20th. The ship would be renamed to the Enterprise and armed with six carriage guns and ten swivels. His next task was to man these ships. Marines were drafted or volunteered from the Army, and the Enterprise had four officers, ten sailors, and seventeen Marines on board. Arnold would use the Liberty and the Enterprise to conduct reconnaissance missions. Eventually, Arnold's motives would be questioned due to his attempts to sidestep orders from Congress, which included a suggestion to invade Canada, which was a direct violation of Congress's policy. He was ordered by Congress to obey orders and placed under the command of Colonel Benjamin Hinman. As a reply, Arnold submitted his resignation. However, the ship's Liberty and Enterprise still conducted their reconnaissance missions. During one of the Liberty's voyages, the captain and a Marine lieutenant went ashore to obtain intelligence about British military. They were informed by local Native Americans and the French that the British military was preparing to sail to Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point for an attack. This made Americans nervous. Britain had the best navy in the world, and learning that they would soon attack Fort Ticonderoga made troops reconsider defending the fort. The British were at St. John's, preparing for the invasion, and Congress started to reconsider its stance against attacking Canada. General Skylar was now in charge of Fort Ticonderoga and suggested that if it's feasible and that it will not disagree to the Canadians, he could attack St. John's and any other part of Canada that may be a threat. General Schuyler would decide that the British Navy's strength is too great and would not support this attack, but he would leave Fort Ticonderoga two weeks later, leaving General Richard Montgomery in charge. General Montgomery had a different view and thought the only way to defeat Britain was to strike first and destroy their ships at St. John's. On August 28th, 1,200 men would depart on ships to St. John's. They arrived at St. John's in the middle of September and launched their attack. This attack did not go as planned, and the Americans failed at taking St. John. However, the following month was different, and they were able to take a fort on the Richelieu River, and by the end of November took the possession of Montreal. Americans would try and take Quebec, but would be stopped by superior naval power. American troops were forced to retreat and by mid-1776 were back at Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point with little progress to show. America needed more vessels and started building additional schooners, row galleys, gondolas, and one sloop. Building the ships was easy, but now they needed to find men to man the boats. General Horatio Gates ordered that the sailors and marines be drafted from the several brigades of the army. To lead the marines on board the Royal Savage schooner, Ensign James Calderwood was selected from the Navy and commissioned as a lieutenant in the marines. On August 24th, the American naval fleet was prepared to fight the British and set sail for Crown Point. Heavy storms and wind would cause a delay in the fleet's arrival. On October 5th, they met up with three large galleys and prepared for war. The fleet was positioned where the Washington protected the right flank, the Trumbull protected the left, and Congress protected the middle. They sat and waited. The British received intelligence that the Americans were coming and sent ships from St. John's to find them on October 4th. 
On the morning of October 11th, the British fleet spotted the Americans. When the Americans spotted the British Navy, they were shocked by the sheer gun size. The British sent 52 ships, which included a 21-gun and 18-gun. Americans were vastly outnumbered, but the wind was not in Britain's favor and they were having a hard time steering their ships. The Americans took advantage of Mother Nature and ordered the attack. The initial attack by the Americans didn't go well and the Royal Savage ran aground and was an easy target for the British. Three American galleys continued with the attack, but they were welcomed by the Carlton, a 14-gun ship, and multiple gunboats. The battle was intense, and the British and American fought for over five hours. The Americans took heavy damage, and by dusk, the British concluded that the American fleet would be destroyed by the next day. That night, the American captains gathered on board the Congress to decide the next steps. They all agreed that they did not stand a chance against the British Navy. They decided to escape and were able to sneak past the British Navy while they slept that night. The next morning, the British realized the Americans have escaped and began to chase the fleet. The American fleet was spotted and another two and a half hour battle began. The American fleet took significant damage. Marine Sergeant Joseph Cushing, who would later be appointed as a Brigadier General in the Massachusetts Militia, wrote about the battle. He, Cushing talking about Arnold, then ran his own galley and four gunboats ashore in a cove on the eastern coast of the lake and set them on fire, but ordered the colors not to be struck. And as they grounded, the Marines were directed to jump overboard with their arms and accoutrements to ascend a bank about 25 feet elevation and form a line for the defense of their vessels and flags against the enemy. Arnold being the last man who debarked. The battle lasted three days, and Americans lost 11 out of their 15 ships and about 350 men. Even though this battle ended in defeat, the bravery and courage exhibited by these men were noticed. General Gates sent his thanks to the officers, seamen, and marines of the fleet for the gallant defense they made against the great superiority of the enemy's force. He stated, Such magnanimous behavior will establish the fame of the American arms throughout the globe. At the same time this was happening, General George Washington decided he needed ships as well to defend the Boston Harbor. He created a small naval force and enlisted 50 officers, sailors, and marines to man his ships. These men were taken from the army as well. One of these ships, the Hannah, was given orders to seize all enemy vessels bound to or from Boston. On its second day, the Hannah captured the Unity. However, the crew of the Hannah revolted in a mutiny. The mutineers were tried and found guilty. The crew was replaced and the Hannah continued its mission. This crew wouldn't be successful either. They were chased by the Nautilus which ran the Hannah aground. The Americans fled to shore where they fired upon the Nautilus causing severe damage and forcing the ship to make its way back to Boston. It seemed like a common theme. Americans would build ships, send them out, and end up getting destroyed by the British. After evaluation, there was a common denominator of these two failures. The first, naval operations were conducted by army officers under army direction. George Washington and Benedict Arnold had no naval experience whatsoever, but they commanded the navies. And two, 
the priority was staffing these vessels, not finding the most qualified men to serve. George Washington's opinions of Marines and sailors originated from these failures, and he hated Marines, stating that they performed no mission that soldiers could not improvise. However, he still understood the importance of Marines, and the need for Marines would still be recognized by Congress. Next week, the Marines and sailors will redeem themselves during the New Providence Raid and the Raid of Nassau. Thanks for joining. We're now digging into what Marines do best, winning battles. Join us next week when we discuss the New Providence Raid, which includes the first amphibious landing by Marines. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.